0: You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. So welcome uh,
1: to this space. This uh, is organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia University. Exactly one year ago, uh, Russia started uh, its war of aggression against Ukraine. Against many people's expectations, um, Ukrainians have resisted. Um, we've seen Ukrainians of all sectors in Ukraine, but also abroad, including here in Canada, um, joining, you know, uniting to defend their, their country and really doing their parts to uh, resist Russia's um, war. So this is really what we want to talk about today with our three, three speakers, but also welcome other people to join in. Alexandra Povorovnik, uh, who is a Kiev-independent-based translator and journalist. Alina uh, Bondarenko, who is a communications professional in Washington DC and a rising expert in Ukrainian cultural diplomacy. And finally Anton uh, uh, Lyagusha, sorry for butchering your names, uh, Dean of the Faculty of uh, Social Science and Humanities and he specializes in public history. Thank you to our speakers for being here today. I I hope you can hear me well. Thank you. Um, So first, perhaps one thing that I, I would like to ask first, um, what were you doing a year ago and can you take us back perhaps to the first day of of the war? What did you feel? perhaps like
2: start with uh, Alexandra
1: um
2: uh, well <laughs> that's that's a great um, question and one I've been thinking about nonstop for you know the past 24 hours um, I, I just feel like we're stuck in some sort of groundhog day loop. Because it still feels like that twenty fourth of February is is still happening, it's still taking place um but yeah, um like like many Ukrainians, I woke up in the middle of the night. my husband shook me awake um because his parents were calling him um and obviously they were panicking because they had heard explosions. And so he just shook me awoke and said, it's real, it's happening. Um, Because, you know, for weeks before that, we had all been sort of anticipating something, but no one was really sure if it would actually happen and if it would, when it would happen and what it would be like. Um, So he just shook me awake. And my first instinct was, you know, to think that, okay, but, you know, if a war has actually a full-scale invasion has started um then that you know probably means that the russian tanks are at our borders or but you know it still means that we have time because kiev is quite far away from from the um from the border and you know because obviously like like many people who hadn't lived through events like these um, i had only known about wars from world world war 2 movies and so you know i thought that if russia were to attack then it would be a very slow process but no um missiles were flying at kiev and it was a little ironic because i do remember um a day before that i was talking to a wonderful irish journalist about the possibility of an invasion and i sort of joked um that uh, you know, even if Russia actually dares to start a full-scale invasion, they probably wouldn't be, you know, bombing Kiev because because Russians, despite um, their sort of very condescending um, attitudes towards Ukrainian culture and history, they... St- I think there is still a lot of reverence for Kiev as a city, which they call the um, mother of all Russian cities. So I genuinely thought that they wouldn't be firing missiles at it, um, but yeah, obviously, um, I, I was mistaken. So, so like many Ukrainians, I just panicked and and you know we started packing our bags and trying to drive west, um, west to safety, um, and it was it was also a little. Um, Ironic now, uh, because I distinctly remember um, when we were driving out of Kiev with my husband and um, my child, who was um, who was one and a half uh, back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, he didn't understand all that much. Um, uh, but when we were driving out of Kiev, I thought, well, you know, we could drive to Ternopil where my uh, husband has family. But I thought, you know, why drive so far away? Maybe it would make sense to, you know, to make a stop in the um, suburbs, because both our families live in uh, suburbs um, on different sides of Kiev. And my husband's family um, lives in Hostomil. So for a moment, we were sort of thinking about, you know, maybe making a stop there. Um, but uh, the, you know, at the last moment, because we we didn't know that, you know, something was going to go down there. But uh, at the last moment, and this was like five or six in the morning, um, my husband said, no, there, there's a military airport there. We definitely shouldn't go there. And you know, um, in retrospect, that was uh, a wise decision. But yeah, I think I think uh, like, that's what um, that particular morning looked like for many Ukrainians. So I don't think I'm I'm um, that unique in that respect. But mm. we were I do think we were um, we did wake up quite early and we immediately decided to leave the city. So um, I do know that a lot of people did have more sort of eventful um, trips out of town because you know there were um, traffic jams and things like that later on. Um, but luckily we sort of had a well. Uh, I say relatively um, event event free uh, sort of trip out of Kiev.
0: Yeah, Alina, what are, what about you? Um, I have a lot of friends from abroad, and I think all January, uh, we've had this conversation about the possibility of war. Um, I was so sure they just panicking, overthinking, they exaggerated. Nothing will happen. But just in case for all my travels, I would bring my birth certificate and all my diplomas. Whenever I would travel abroad that winter, for just in case, good to mm-hmm. have, which I never did before. And uh, when the war started, I was in Georgia. I got there for holidays before uh, between switching my jobs, and I was going to go back home on uh, Saturday, but. On Thursday, I woke up from a text from one of my friends saying that it has started, so if you have anyone in Ukraine you would like to call, I would do it now. Because nobody knew how the things will develop, if there will be a connection, if they will have internet, if if there will be a chance to reach out in any way to people in Ukraine. Nobody knew that. Mm-hmm. And I remember Georgia is uh, two hours ahead of uh, Kyiv. So I remember it was 7 a.m. in Georgia. Um, I was still sleepy and I looked at my phone. I realized I need to call my family. But I was so hesitant to do that because I thought, well, it's 5 a.m. in Ukraine. They're probably sleeping. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to wake them up because in the back of my head, I realized that it's possibly the last night of calm sleep they will have in a long, long time. And I was hesitant to call my family for like half an hour. Uh, I don't know. And now it just... When you think of it, a year later, I was hesitant to call my family to tell them that the war started, or they Mm -hmm. were. But at that moment, I just... I don't know. I wanted to... To give them like an hour or so of calm of calmness of normal life um, and then I realized a lot of people were trying to leave the country so I just um, contacted everyone I know from abroad and we just tried to facilitate their logistics about moving because people were where to go, which road to choose, because there were missiles attacks. There, some roads were blocked, there were, and when people are panicking, packing, gathering their family, and just starting the road, all I could do from from the safety of Tbilisi is just facilitate their way as much as I can. Mm-hmm. I would do that. I contacted a lot of my friends in different countries. They started some... Charity, volunteer, organizations help, helping Ukrainian refugees on borders. When Ukrainians arrived, where to go, who to ask—basically, was documents. Not everyone even had this like calmness and resistance at the moment. You know, to keep things at one place. So a lot of people left without documents or something. There are many cases like that, and I would just would match people um, and write places. And help to leave from different corners of the country. But when I asked my mom to organize our family to leave somewhere safer, she refused and she told me that she will drive tank if needed herself. Mm -hmm. Because this is her home and she will not leave. But um, I remember that day, I think a few days when everyone was in a rush to leave. I didn't really go to bed because I was on my phone, just matching, connecting people, finding new people, contacts, who could help, who can live where. Um, so that was all I could do and all I could think about.
1: Yeah. Well, what about you,
0: Anton?
3: Um. It was very, hello everyone, it was very difficult and very, you know, specific time uh, for me because I was in the sea when war started and um, unlike all my beloved people who was in Ukraine and for me war started earlier than in Ukraine, because just like today, you know, I remember each minute of the time of the day, it was uh, late night, uh, Wednesday late night uh, um, of sword, and I was watching um, United Nations meeting um, regarding to... You know, potential Putin's war in Ukraine and Russia's Russia's uh, Russia aggression uh, against Ukraine and that time on my screen, I saw, you know, notifications that Putin gave speech on YouTube and I absolutely realized that it is started and I was shocked. I was, you know, in panic Um. It was maybe one of the most difficult moments in my life um, because thousands of kilometers, you know, and you can do absolutely nothing to care um, of people you love, to care of your parents, um, you know, of of anyone doesn't matter. And first, my. Act was I just you know tried call uh, tried made made a call um, to my parents to my friends and tried to wake them up and told them that war is started and please do something in terms of you know um, seeking more safe place and something else. And that time um, I just started to share in my thoughts and I was prepared a lot of letters and I decided uh, to send a lot of friends, a lot of scientists in the United States, in the Western, uh, in West part of Europe, you know, with very um, clear description uh, what this war is for Ukraine, for, you know, whole, whole globe and why it's absolutely narcissistic, unprovoked, very brutal war. And of course, unfortunately, next day, it was Thursday, uh, started my course at George Mason University. And... Without any sleeping, um, <laughs> being in shock, um, I decided, um, you know, talk to my students not about course, not about, you know, not about very scientific, academic, um, theoretical um, words and approaches so on so on so on I decided to share uh, very shortly very briefly history of Ukraine and of course uh, simultaneously I was seeking way how I need evacuate my parents from Donetsk Oblast because they used to be uh, they used to live not far from Mm, frontline that time and it was one of the most maybe important scene um, I need you know decide and I need mm, I need to do something to evacuate them yeah and if I may
4: with a with a follow-up question hi hi everybody I'm Katia Uh, and I, I think I already have the answer but how, how did you decide to take action? How did you decide that it was important for you? And how did you all uh, choose what you do and what to put your strength in?
3: Uh, I don't remember, you know. It just was a lot of actions. Absolutely. Uh, I decided th- something before because to me it was absolutely clear that ward will be. You know, in January, in in middle of February, it was, it was, unfortunately, it was absolutely clear. I don't, um, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't want to believe in it. And before war started, I prepared a lot, you know, a list of actions I need to do. And just, I did something according to the list.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean one, of, one of the things that we've seen in this is how much, you, how, how strong Ukrainian civil society is. And it seems that it's always been that way. But it's, I mean, you, we can really see it now. So I was wondering, um, Alina and, and, and Alexandra, how did you personally decide to take action as well? And how have the different sectors of society responded to the war and, and, and in a way adapted what they were doing before the war? to the war now in order to resist um, Russia's aggression?
0: Um, to me, it wasn't even a question or something to think over. If I if I should take action, of course I should take action. This is my home. These are people who I love and deeply care about. These are my happy places, places where I grew up and everything I love. So of course I should do something. Then I started thinking of what can I do? I. I'm probably useless when it comes to physical strength and war and fighting, so I couldn't do that. But I realized that my strengths is people who I know, who I have met when traveling, when studying, when working. So, And a lot of them reached out to me that morning asking how they could help. And on my social media, I saw a lot of my friends seeking a way to leave, like safe way to leave the country. So I decided, okay, my friends are the people who I know. So I will, I will use that to, to help them and make them help each other. So that what I was doing. But for, for example, from my mother, she is uh, a teacher in one of Ukrainian schools, and it's in the very center of the country. It's a geographical center. So. Whenever somebody would leave from uh, south or east of the country, they would go through that road, and they would go through our town. And in that school, they just started this, opened up like humanitarian, not even a shelter, but this stop where people could stop on their way, have some, have lunch, dinner, have some warm food, shower, take go to sleep that they can take rest because that area was and thankfully remains safe-ish it's far from fighting and people could that was a place where people who were fleeing the country could actually stop for the first time and take a break and she told me stories when there were people who haven't had any food in three days because they were driving from from her son there were a lot of people driving from Mariupol at the very first hours of the war, but roads were packed. And um, I know that my school is doing just that, just helping people on their way. Um, Recently, I talked to my colleagues from other Ukrainian businesses about how their companies, uh, what their companies do. And I was, shocked but in a good way about the level and the necessity of people to to have to be helpful because so many companies ukrainian businesses they do something they have different cases they have different programs projects activities to support army to to address humanitarian help Uh, to help pets, but somehow help with any sort of issues that the war has brought. And I was surprised uh, and impressed about how important it was for everyone to do something, to be, to contribute, to, to come in victory. Like, there are big companies who raise millions for different supplies for the military. But there is a smaller uh, company who does not have this capacity to raise millions, but they were doing, they were buying food for pets. Or there was other company which had me in tears for hours because they were buying bulletproof vests for children who were, um, for evacuation. And I was shocked and deeply... Yes, I was shocked that there are bulletproof vests for children. That they exist at all—it mm-hmm, is it mm-hmm. so cruel. But also on the other hand, I felt very grateful and relieved that this exists for children. So there is one layer of safety you can put on them, and yes, and hope it works. So, and there are so many companies doing something. So it became, it became more to, to help, to donate as much as you can, but it's, it, it became one of daily routine, I would say that.
1: Yeah, I've been talking for the past few months or so, I've been talking to a, a female, a woman business leader uh, who's in Ukraine and she gave me some numbers uh, as well of the number of new businesses that have, um. Isn't during the war it's like twenty percent mm-hmm. up, but for only like business created by women, it's really gone up from like twenty eight percent to forty eight or something like that. So yeah. it's quite impressive.
0: Even here in uh, in Washington D.C., there is um, Ukrainian-owned uh, coffee shop, uh, which it's like they have breakfast, brunch, um, coffee, pastry, of course. And recently, and they have always been raising, since day one, they have always been raising money there to send to Ukrainian army or to address it to humanitarian help. They've been always doing something and they always had some fundraiser going on for Ukraine. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, this place was robbed. Um, A lot of things were stolen. They couldn't work for two weeks. But what touched me the most on their social media, they didn't ask people to help them because people were asking how we can help you. They didn't ask their customers to help them in any way. They asked customers to continue supporting Ukraine and they left. They opened fundraiser um, online and they asked their customers to donate that help they were they, they thought they would do, not to not to this coffee shop, but to Ukrainian efforts. And, again, this case had me in tears because these people are going through a crisis of their own, financial, mm-hmm. emotional, and when people ask how we can help you directly, they ask to help Ukraine, and then we'll fly their way, regardless. Yeah. Alexandra, um... What, what what have you seen
1: around you and you know Ukrainian civil society has, has a long history of stepping in where the government was, was missing. What have you seen and what do you think this this like whole of society mobilization is attributable to?
2: Well, um, you know, I think Ukrainians like to at least in peaceful times, we do have this tendency to criticize one another and to argue a lot about you know what's wrong with our society and how we could be better and and things like that. So usually um, Ukrainians it, it, it does take um, unbelievably sort of um, extraordinary circumstances to get Ukrainians to agree on something and but when they do, when we do, um, I think we're a force to be reckoned with. Uh, I think the last time we saw something like that was um, during Maidan, obviously. And, you know, this state of, you know, people working day and night to help one another, it's its incredibly inspiring. And, you know, we, we talk, we obviously, you know for obvious reasons, we talk a lot about our soldiers who are protecting us on the front lines every day. And, you know, the incredible volunteers who are, you know, fundraising and buying things and, and, you know, just sort of solving issues that they, you know, a year ago, these people definitely didn't think they would be facing today because a lot of these volunteers and even a lot of these um, soldiers, they used to be journalists or, I don't know, um, writers artists whatever um but now they've been sort of forced into this role and they're you know they're definitely um doing an incredible job but there are also millions uh, of people of ukrainians who have ordinary jobs who've spent their entire lives building absolutely normal careers just minding their business who've now now become heroes um you know i think what for me was um incredibly touching, was the work of our um, railway workers. Uh, There's even um, an exhibit devoted to it um, uh, in our central railway station in Kiev. Because the thing is, is that, you know, when the war just started and, you know, a lot of people needed to be evacuated quite fast, And our National Railway Service, they started doing that. And obviously, you know, to evacuate these people, the evacuated wounded, they needed to go right up to the front lines, sometimes even beyond the front lines. And it's, you know, it's clearly an incredibly dangerous job. And these people, they're not, you know, they're not... Um, special service guys or, or I don't know or soldiers they haven't been trained for this they're just ordinary you know most of them are just sort of ladies uh, of a certain age who've spent their entire lives serving tea on trains or you know making sure that the passengers have nice bedding um and in normal times, um, I think a lot of Ukrainians used to criticize them for, you know, and, and criticize the railway service for being too slow or for not being polite enough and things like that. Um, but when the invasion, the full scale invasion happened, um, the the head of the railway service he specifically asked, you know, all of the workers if they were willing to go to the front lines to help evacuate people and. Not a single person working for this huge country's huge railway company. Not a single person said no. Um, All of them said, "You know, I have grandkids. I can't imagine um, my grandkids being stuck near the front lines. Um, So I can, you know, I have to. I have to do my duty. I have to help these kids. I have to help their families." And they've been evacuating incredible amounts of people with pets. You know, they've been evacuating whole zoos, um, evacuating wounded soldiers under missile fire, you know, under horrific circumstances. And they've been still doing their job. And a lot of them, sadly, um, have, have perished on the job, several hundred railway workers so far. And it's not something that they were specifically trained for. Um, It's just something they chose to do in the moment. And I think the same can be seen with, um, you know, our energy repair people um, all over the country. Because when, you know, part of our energy grid um, gets hit by a Russian missile, um, the repairs people, they start going in and fixing it before, you know, before the air raid is over. And obviously, um, the Russians have this horrific practice of doing double taps, of, you know, hitting firing a missile and then at a important strategic um, place and then firing another missile to, to get the people who are trying to help out there. And so a lot of these people who've had normal lives, who aren't soldiers, who are just, you know, doing this to keep the country going are. Um, They've been killed on the jobs, and yet they continue doing it every day. And that's, I think, that's incredible because I'll never forget, you know, driving um out of Kiev on very early in the morning on twenty fourth last year, and seeing cab drivers um and bus drivers driving into the city because you know they had a job to do. And the fact that now, you know, little businesses are still working, that, you know, supermarkets are working all over the country near the front lines, that people are, you know, still delivering mail very efficiently, very quickly, Um, that people are, you know, keeping um, the, you know, the internet on everywhere and the lights on. It's incredible. And I don't think I've ever seen such a show of solidarity and I don't think, you know, a lot of people say, um, a lot of foreigners often say that, you know, Ukrainians are obviously special or, or that we're, you know, that we're heroic or something. I don't, I, I, I do hope that, you know, this is just humanity um, at, at what it should be like when something extraordinary and horrific happens. I hope that, you know, that other societies would handle this in a similar fashion. But but yeah, it is incredibly touching. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm rambling on for far too long. But um, just one more example. You know, uh, for the past couple of months, there's been um, a lot of power outages all over the country. And um, that's, you know, that, that was a problem for, for multiple reasons. But also, one of them was that people kept getting stuck in elevators, because, you know, obviously, we're You know, we're told to um, avoid taking the elevators and walk on foot. But a lot of people can't do that, you know, for obvious reasons. And so they ended up getting stuck in elevators. And small businesses um, like shops, Cornish stores would, you know, start making these sort of provision boxes and leaving them in elevators. Or neighbors would, you know, start making provision boxes and leaving them in elevators. So that if you're stuck in an elevator, you can get a snack, some water, um, maybe a light, or things like that. Just so that people would be more comfortable. It's not a government initiative. It's not something that uh, one large business did. Um, it's just something that you know people did and are still doing to help each other out. So it's incredible. And these examples are everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, to I, I in in
1: Montreal here I live next to the. Um, A Ukrainian uh, center, and they constantly have fundraisers and concerts. So, perhaps the question to Katya and Anton. And Anton, uh, how have Ukrainians abroad responded, including, or great, you know, be it families or uh, Ukrainian organizations? What have you seen? Pass Anton first and then Katya.
3: Okay. Uh, First of all, if, if I can, I would like to add something that, you know, civil society, uh, to my mind, not only, we can, we can describe not only in terms of, you know, um, emerge or like being huge and something else in Ukraine now, it's very diversity, I mean, in terms of helping each other In a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of branches of uh, state life, I mean, like helping to serve and preserve and um, to do something with uh, art, you know, on the one hand, with elder people to help to elder people on the other hand, to, to do a lot of things. In organization, um, like, you know, uh, civil society groups in Ukraine have played a significant role in responding uh, to this war at all. And many have focused on providing humanitarian um, to IDPs and those affected uh, by the conflict. Some of them organized, um, you know, a huge protests um, all over the globe. And yes, in as I know, uh, in Washington, D.C., in the United States, uh, there are a big, a huge Ukrainian, you know, very powerful Ukrainian um, diaspora, and mm, they did a lot of things. Uh, you know, to fight in Russia propaganda narratives in the United States to help, uh, mm, you know, to provide not only humanitarian aid uh, to people in Ukraine but to do a lot of things, um, war aid, um, in terms of war aid, and um, there are there are. Maybe not, not just one big organization, but a lot of uh, people, you know, self-organized, and to doing th- to doing all possible, you know, absolutely all possible, from sending money, raising money, to really humanitarian aid. And as me, and I took part very special, to took part in very very specific work maybe it was it was uh, anti-russian propaganda war because it was critically important you know extremely important in time uh, sharing ukrainian narratives sharing um, any knowledge uh, knowledges about ukraine abroad and catching and fighting and facing russian propaganda
4: katya perhaps yes from my side uh well we can say that i've been a lucky quote uh that to see how uh the french and canadian societies have reacted because when the war first started i was uh, in paris and um, one of the first examples that comes to my mind is uh, basic uh, businesses that uh, transformed into humanitarian aid Uh, for example i was using this uh, travel company to send uh some clothes to to my grandparents during the the month of january february so just when i arrived to france and uh they the the day that that the war began uh they transitioned to now sending humanitarian aid so they were collecting points in uh, in paris all over the city uh, and they were sending it for free so I, i think that the the feeling that Alexandra talked about, or even uh, Antonina, Alina, uh, that just all Ukrainian society shifted towards wartime action, uh, no matter what you were doing before. I mean, of course, people engaged in the armed forces, but on a more civil basis, uh, volunteers have emerged uh, everywhere. And here in Canada, in Montreal, As well, we have a huge Canadian diaspora, uh, Ukrainian diaspora, sorry, in Canada. And uh, all kinds of uh, actions have been organized uh, throughout the whole year. And I think that this uh, resilience and this strength that is shown every day by Ukrainian civil society is what motivates and keeps up hope, I guess, for... uh, the Western countries to to give us help because that that's what Ukraine needs, and so I I think that if there's one country that can inspire such strength, it's really Ukraine, and people have shown it throughout the the whole year.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
4: Um, I mean, I I
1: I've been particularly impressed in a way by also the role of women. You know, in in wars we often We often portray women as as victims or as as refugees. But in this war, again, we have seen women really um, mobilize uh, in in concrete ways. So I was wondering if if one of you could say something about the role of women in this, in in providing different types of aids and how how it might change women's rights and and equality in, in Ukraine after the war whoever
4: wants to um, talk Alex- about this. Alexandra, Alina, maybe,
0: maybe you can talk guess, about it more. I, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I had, of course, women became, since men were mostly men who took, a lot of men <laughs> took weapons and went to defend their countries, women became um, responsible for, for peaceful cities in many, many ways and also for support the men on the front lines get. There are a lot of women volunteers, a lot of women who who just rose to the occasion, right? They took this responsibility, huge responsibility just to be that, um, to provide the stability to be reliable for for many, many people in different occasions. But also what is important... um, I remember talking to one of, um, person from Georgian, um, there is this international organization, um, that fights for women rights. And I talked to one of their, uh, program leaders and she told me how Ukrainian women not only changed Ukrainian society, but also, um, women, in the region, because before that, when women faced some sort of abuse or were raped or were harassed, um, they would they would not be very they would be hesitant to say that to ask for help, right? When women were in situation when they're victims, and after Ukrainians were Ukrainian women, especially they would say that Russians hurt us, right? They they beat us, they rape us, they, they do all sort of whatever they can to us, but they actually say it and speak up for themselves and the society raised for them to, to defend these women. And it actually gave um, a lot of this feeling of bravery to other women all over the world to actually say that they were victims of abuse in different ways and uh, i did not expect it to cause um i did not see uh this bravery to to say about your trauma um to make this impact globally and um yeah so now a lot of uh, organizations that support women they have even more work and i'm glad that um People feel safe to say about their um, hard experiences, and and start some action to avoid that. Yeah,
1: absolutely, Alexandra.
2: Yeah, if I could just um, add uh, to what Alina just said, and I agree with yeah. everything, is uh, is also that you know. We do see Ukrainian society as patriarchal. And in a lot of ways, um, that is definitely, um, sadly, still the case. Uh, but in certain, I think, aspects of our society, I think that we have underestimated the role that women uh, have played for quite some time now. Um, and now we're finally starting to discuss all of this because, for example, um the Ukrainian armed forces have a very sizable number of women fighting currently. I think it's about 15%, uh, unless I'm mistaken, which is, you know, for an Eastern European country, it's quite, it's quite a, a serious number. And so you can't say it's just you know, men fighting on the front lines or whatever, uh, because women are absolutely involved. Uh But And they have been, you know, since 2014, a lot of women have been fighting on the front lines. Uh, But I think now um, society is sort of learning to talk about all that. And, you know, women aren't just... um, Invisible when fighting on the front lines because I know that, um, starting with 2014, that was a problem which a lot of local feminists and feminist uh, organizations uh, tried to speak up about. The problem was that there were a lot of women serving in the Ukrainian army, but because of you know outdated laws or things like that, um, they either couldn't formally uh, serve uh, on certain positions and have certain, um, job titles, although they did the job. Um, so I think now sort of society's understanding of what's happening and, uh, the laws surrounding all of that are actually starting to resemble the reality of what has been happening for quite some time. So women have been in the army for, for years now, But only now we're tackling issues as, you know, the the fact that women need um, sanitary products or or special underwear or, you know, or clothes that fit differently. So I think now our society is, and it's not just about women, I think it's about diversity in general. Um, Ukrainian society is, I think, a lot more diverse than a lot of people, especially foreigners, give it credit for. And, you know, even... Even more diverse than Ukrainians themselves give it credit for, because I think a lot of the time we sort of we feel like we're not modern enough, not uh, progressive enough, not liberal enough, um, although our society uh, is very diverse, and that's one of its main strengths so now I think finally people are realizing that our strength lies in our diversity, and that the people protecting ukraine. And the people working for a brighter future for ukraine the people leading businesses and you know the influential politicians playing a huge role they come from all backgrounds and you know it's men and women and people from different ethnicities and with very different uh, political views so i think finally uh it's not that our society wasn't diverse or that women didn't play an important role in it before i think finally people are giving credit where it's due. And I think that's absolutely wonderful because we still have a lot of issues, sadly, and we still have a lot of work on. But I do think that finally, people are talking more about, you know, the the female snipers and the incredibly brave women on the front lines and the different battalions made up of people from all ethnic or political backgrounds, and I do think it's it's a leap forward, and I hope that this will definitely um, help Ukrainians from all backgrounds sort of get along better in the future and value each other more. Thanks, Alexandra. Um,
1: perhaps perhaps one one next question that I I perhaps like to ask you all. Um, you know, some countries have not taken a strong stand to to support Ukraine uh, including you know some governments in in, in in the global South if you could send one clear message to to them about why they should support Ukraine what, what what would be perhaps Anton first
3: It's for a complicated question but if we talk about thousand country first of all I should say that you, have to rediscover Ukraine in terms of decolonization process. to my mind it's very important uh, for for such countries you, you know and um, we um, not we like Ukrainians but thousand people can find a lot of things, um, you know in ukrainian society like in a mirror on the one hand and can be you know can learn something from this brutal unprovoked war um russian war against ukraine and at least it's just you know just very clear message they should be with ukraine it's only one way to steal, to steal, democratic, on the one hand, to steal, to be honor, uh, to be honest, and to be, to be on the side of, you know, like Zelensky told, not to be on the side of good.
0: Thanks so much, Anton. Um, Alina, maybe if you'd like to go next. Yes, I agree with Anton about um many things and but I also think as communicator uh, professional, I think that when we talk about different countries and their consistent support um, we can't I can't think of one message I would say I feel like you always change language you always you always choose what to say to a certain person, so it's hard to say one message that would that would be heard in in every culture for in every country. But um, I would say something that people can relate to, and everyone loves and values their homes, and people love and value their happy places. So are Ukrainians. And we really, really, really looking forward to have our homes and our happy places safe and be able to come back there. And um, I'm endlessly grateful for countries and for people who stand with us and who support us while we doing everything we can to, uh, to get safety back to our homes and I'm endlessly grateful for them for helping us um, to return home and make it safe again
2: thank Thank you very much perhaps Alexandra
1: and Katja if you want to say a few words as well you're welcome to
2: do so sure um those those were wonderful messages and I, I agree with them wholeheartedly but if I could just cheat a little um the thing is that I believe that the main issue with the lack of support uh, from the countries uh, of the global south, it's not that the people there um, wouldn't sympathise with Ukraine's plight. Um, I think the main issue there is that Russia is spending a lot of resources, uh, and sadly it still has these resources, uh, to sort of create a very... um, very inaccurate picture of what's happening in Ukraine. And Russia is doing this intentionally. Uh, It is exploiting uh, certain ideas. It is promoting itself um, as an anti-imperialist force, which is absolutely laughable. And, you know, or at least it would be laughable if it wasn't so horrifying and sad and cynical. Um, And what I do hope, is that with Russia gradually um, losing a lot of its um, resources and a lot of its income, uh, I do hope that in the future it simply won't have enough money or time or whatever to spread these um, corrupting messages To people from other countries. And I think that without Russia's influence, um, without Russia's influence on social media, without Russia's influence in the print media, um, I do think that we are going to see a vastly different picture. Um, I think that generally, you know, without Russia's influence, um, I think we'll find out that, um, you know, these horrifying views um, starting with I don't know the far right um, ideas and ending with you know um, these very radical uh, anti-vax um, sentiments I think that we'll find out that they are a lot less present um, in the societies around us and that people are a lot smarter and a lot more empathetic than you know that then um, Kremlin funded bots would like us all to believe but yes but also i think it would be great for everyone if if the world finally saw ukraine for what it really is which is an ex-colony which has been you know uh which has gone through horrific events in its history and i hope that they'll also see russia for what it is uh, the remnants of an empire which which you know which haven't um haven't really faced up to its own horrific legacy um so yeah i think that you know if russia stops interfering in these processes uh then people are smart enough to see things for what they really are thanks alexandra
0: i really appreciate that um katerina we also wanted to give you an opportunity if you had uh some some final words to contribute yeah of course everything uh, has
4: been already said uh, i i was going to really insist on the fact that um the the post-colonial um, let's say movement uh has to be emphasized and it's only now that some like, historians and uh, other scholars are promoting it but um, just the fact that Russia is promoting a certain kind of narrative a certain speech uh, in countries that often had a, a colonial background uh, I think we we should insist on the fact that supporting Ukraine is also supporting decolonialism and supporting feminism, as we said and as we saw with women's implications. Uh, so I think we, we really have to insist on, on these uh, two issues uh, and to offer uh, a new image of Ukraine, not as only this post-Soviet state or the Eastern European state, not really a, a total member of. Uh, the Western society and the European society.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all of our wonderful speakers for joining us today and sharing their perspectives and all of our audience for attending. Stay tuned for more Twitter spaces events from us. Thank you.